0: Well, we're continuing together our study in our Confession of Faith in Chapter 30, which deals with the subject of the Lord's Supper. We looked at Paragraph 1, which dealt with the institution of the Lord's Supper, its inauguration, its observation, and its purpose. We then looked at Paragraph 2, which dealt with the nature of the Lord's Supper, what it is not and what it is, and then we looked at Paragraph 3, And four, which dealt with the procedure for the Lord's Supper, uh, the proper procedure in paragraph three. And of course, the perverted procedure in paragraph four. Now, as we've said many times, but I will say again, um, this chapter contains a great deal of polemical material against the Roman Catholic Church and its practice of the Lord's Supper. And the reason why it does so is because their whole church service, which they call the mass is built around and focused on the celebration of the Lord's supper and their doctrine regarding that supper is so perverted and so corrupt and so debased as to completely destroy the gospel and be a wicked blasphemy against Jesus Christ so that their so-called celebration of the Lord's Supper uh, is anything but. It is actually an anti-Christian activity and practice. And so what we do is not what they do. And what they do is not what we do. And so what we have here in paragraphs five and six is a discussion of the very core of the fallacy and error of Roman Catholicism in its doctrine of the Lord's Supper. And that is the subject of the nature of the elements of the Lord's Supper. The elements of course are bread and wine. What is the nature of those elements? What are they? And what do they become? And so what we have is a setting forth of the true doctrine in paragraph five, and then a repudiation of the false doctrine in paragraph six. Now I'm going to read them both together, paragraphs five and six, and then I'm going to deal with them together because they're so intertwined. uh, It doesn't make a lot of sense to deal with them separately. Now, In paragraph five, it says, the outward elements in this ordinance, duly set apart to the use ordained by Christ, have such relation to him crucified as that truly, although in terms used figuratively, they are sometimes called, it should read there, sometimes called by the names of the things they represent. To wit, the body and blood of Christ. Albeit in substance and nature, they still remain truly and only bread and wine as they were before. Um, Now, um, what paragraph 5 is saying is that these outward elements, the bread and the wine are called the body and the blood of Christ. We've seen that as we've read the gospel narratives, Jesus says, this is my body. This is my blood. Okay. And so because they're called by those terms, the Catholics say that's what they are. And we say, not so, In substance and nature, they remain bread and wine. They merely represent, symbolically, the body and blood of Jesus Christ. So we say the elements are and remain bread and wine, and they are set apart as symbols of the body and blood of Christ, but they do not become the body and blood of Christ. Now notice then the false teaching in paragraph six, that doctrine which maintains a change of the substance of bread and wine into the substance of Christ's body and blood, commonly called transubstantiation by consecration of a priest or by any other way, is repugnant, not to scripture alone, but even to common sense and reason overthrows the nature of the ordinance and hath been and is the cause of manifold superstitions, yea of gross idolatries. So last time I read to you out of the Roman Catholic Bible in the dictionary they have in it, which has the imprimatur of their cardinal, uh, their teaching on the real presence of Christ in the elements, in which it was explicitly said that the bread and the wine actually become the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ, so that his whole person, body, soul, spirit, divinity, blood, are present, um, not just in the elements, but the elements become those things. Even though to our senses, they still appear to be merely bread and wine. But they say, actually, they are the literal body and blood of Jesus. So paragraph five says, here's the language of scripture. Here's what it means. Paragraph six says, here's the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. That doctrine is revolting both to scripture and to reason. All right. Having then seen what the confession says, let's proceed to a biblical examination of the subject at hand. Now, this is going to take a couple of weeks. We're not going to get through this today, I assure you, uh, because um, there's a great deal um, that goes into this, but we're going to get started. And hopefully as we proceed, the absurdity of what they do will be, made abundantly clear. Now, you may say, well, none of us are Catholics, Pastor, what do you spend all this time on this subject for? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One, I suppose, is that I was a Roman Catholic church and I used to believe this stuff and have been delivered from it. And my gratefulness to that drives me to um, a um, a real concern for others that are entrapped in it. Um, the other thing is, is that there's been a flattening and a leveling in these ecumenical days, so that if somebody says the name Jesus, uh, people uh, lump them into the category of being Christians, and it's like you know the Catholics are Christians and the Eastern Orthodox are Christians and you know the Protestants are all Christians. We're all just Christians, and and uh, we need to not try to convert the Catholics or evangelize them because they're believers just like we are. It's important for us to understand that that's not the case. Doctrinal distinctives have been so watered down and so minimized in our day and age as to lead the average evangelical Christian to think that Catholics are really not much different than they are. And the point that I want to make is that they are hugely different from what we are. They have another gospel. The Roman Catholic Church is a Christian cult. It is not Christianity. And we need to be very clear about that. I remember a year or two ago when, when the Pope died, you know, everybody was saying, oh, you know, the Pope died, he's in heaven. And I remember hearing John MacArthur preach a marvelous message on, um, on the death of Pope John and, and uh, how that he's now in hell. And uh, in fact, I was so impressed with the message, I duplicated and passed out a copy to everybody in the church, you recall. And he did an outstanding job of showing the heresy of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, the Roman Catholic Church does have errors. Errors are something about which if you're wrong, it doesn't damn your soul to hell. A heresy on the other hand is something that if you're wrong about that, you cannot be saved. For example, if you're wrong about salvation by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone, And you think there's some other method of salvation, like by works or law keeping or something, that's heresy. And you can't be saved if you're not trusting in Christ for your salvation. And so what you believe about the millennial reign of Christ is not a matter of of, uh, salvation, but what you believe about the sacrifice of Christ is. And at the very core of the doctrine of the mass is the doctrine of the nature of the sacrifice of Christ and the person of Christ. And what the mass actually is, as our confession says, it is a gross idolatry. And you know that those who worship idols aren't worshiping the true God. And if you're not worshiping the true God and you're worshiping an idol, you don't go to heaven. So let's be very clear about the fact that Catholics, if they believe the doctrine that Catholicism teaches are no more saved than a Mormon or a Jehovah's witness, Um, or any other cultist. Uh, They are not our Christian brother. Now, I don't say that hatefully and I don't say that bitterly and I'm not say that angrily. Okay. It's just a fact. I love Roman Catholics and I long to see them saved. It's like Paul said about the Jews in uh, Romans 10 and verse 1. He says, brother, my heart's desire and prayer for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them witness that I have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. You could say the exact same thing about the Roman Catholics. Brethren, my heart, desire, and prayer for the Catholics is that they might be saved. For I bear them record they have a zeal for God. They do, but not according to knowledge. For they going about to establish their own righteousness um, have not submitted themselves to the righteousness which is of God. And so because they have a false gospel, they're in darkness, they're lost, I was there. By the grace of God, a man came and witnessed to me and led me to Christ, and uh, I was delivered from that darkness and that bondage of that false religion. And I've been eternally grateful for uh, someone witnessing to me and not thinking, oh, well, he's a Catholic. He's fine. He's going to heaven. But he came along and says, no, you're not fine. You're not going to heaven. Here's the true gospel. Here's how to go to heaven. And as a result, I was saved from the darkness and the damnation of that religion. And so my heart is to see Catholics saved. I am not hateful towards them at all. Um, I just uh, pity them. And I want us to understand that they are objects of evangelism. And we need to preach the gospel to them because they don't know the gospel. The gospel is not preached in Roman Catholic churches. What's preached is a perverted idolatry of the mass and the Christ of the mass. And that's what people are trusting in. And that's why they're going to hell. Okay. So this is not just some obtuse, uh, scholastic um, matter of of theological uh, minutia. This is as important as are you going to heaven or are you going to hell? Okay. So make no mistake. uh, The Catholic Church is taking all 450 million of her adherents to hell if they... Embrace and believe the doctrine of the Mass. Well, with that justification, let us proceed. The word transubstantiation simply means to change one substance into another. Um, The substance part is the last part of the word, and the trans part is the first part of the word. To trans substance is to change the substance of something from one thing to another. So we talk about transubstantiation. We're talking about changing one substance into another. And this is the word that the Catholics themselves have selected to describe what they do. they think they do when they celebrate their mass. Now what this doctrine of transubstantiation teaches is that the bread and the wine actually become the literal physical body and blood of Christ. And so when the priest holds up the host, the host is the wafer, that they use, the piece of unleavened bread they use, they call it a host. When he holds that up and he says, this is my body, he believes that that act and those words actually transfigure or transubstantiate that bread into the body of Christ. And in the same way, when he holds up the chalice and he says, this is this is my blood, he believes that that changes the wine into the actual blood of Christ. So, both the elements are changed into the very body and blood of the living Christ, which also includes his soul and his divinity. That is the totality of his person as the God-man is, the, the, the elements are changed into that very substance of Christ as the God-man. And so, these elements become Christ's entire person, his body, his blood, his soul, and his deity. And each individual wafer, which is then served to the communicants, is a complete Christ in and of itself. Each wafer is not a part of Christ. Each wafer is a complete Christ. The bread and the wine only appear to remain bread and wine, in reality, they are Christ himself. And so the priest then takes this person and breaks him and offers him as a sacrifice for the sins of the people, and then the people eat him. So he turns the host into Christ and then he breaks the host, which is, this is my body, which is broken for you. And that's the actual sacrificial act in which Christ is re-sacrificed again on the altar um, in this repetitive ongoing sacrifice. And uh, because each and every individual host is a complete Christ, The host then is to be elevated and it is to be worshiped as the very person of Christ would be elevated and worshiped if he were there himself. Because in their minds, he is there. I mean, if Jesus literally came down from heaven, like at the second coming, and walked in through that door and walked up this aisle and and stood up here, would we worship him? We would worship him. Okay. When he was alive on the earth 2000 years ago, people bowed down and worshiped him. And that was good. They should have done that. And so if Jesus, as the Catholics say is truly uh, present uh, flesh and blood, uh, divinity, and soul in the element, then to worship, the element is to worship Christ because the element is Christ. Okay. Now I'm not containing a caricature here. This is exactly what they believe. It's exactly what they say. And it's exactly what um, you can read in any of their catechisms or in any of their dictionaries. And so there are then two ideas contained in this teaching of transubstantiation. There is the literal and real physical presence of Christ in the elements. That is the elements actually become Christ. That's one idea. And then the second idea is that the priest then is making a real sacrifice for sin by the offering of Christ's body on the altar. And this is done with the breaking of the host and uh, uh, each time that the mass is performed. So he turns the bread and wine into Christ and then he sacrifices Christ for the sins of the people. That's what happens. That's what they say happens. Okay. Now having then seen... The um, statement of the view. Now let's consider together the refutation of the view. The refutation of the view. Now this view of the Lord's Supper, which the Catholics have, is based on a gross misinterpretation of passages that use metaphorical language to describe spiritual truth, but which they insist on interpreting literally. They didn't get this doctrine out of thin air. There are passages in the Bible that talk about the bread being the body of Christ and the wine being the blood of Christ. But the question is, how are those passages to be understood? Are they to be understood literally or are they to be understood figuratively and symbolically and metaphorically? What we're going to do then is we're going to look at each of these passages which are alleged to support this doctrine. And we're going to demonstrate the absurdity of taking these passages literally and the necessity of taking them figuratively and as metaphorical language to describe spiritual truth. Now, the first passage we want to look at is John chapter 6 verse 28 to 69. John chapter 6, verse 28 to 69. Now, this is the first place that the eating of the flesh of Christ and the drinking of the blood of Christ is introduced in the Word of God. Now, notice John chapter 6, beginning at verse 28. It's important to understand the context of this passage. Jesus has just gotten done feeding the 5,000. Okay. He multiplied the loaves and the fishes and he fed 5,000 people. So these folks come looking for food. They wanted in fact, make him king. And he says, no, I'm not going to be your welfare king. That just passes out food. Uh, And he escaped from them. Well, they found him and he says, you know, that you sought me, um, Verse 26, Jesus answered them and said, Verily I you, you, seek me not because you saw the miracles, because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. So understand the context, okay, of the passage that we're about to, to, to go through. Jesus says, verse 27, labor not for the meat which perishes, but for the meat which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give you, for him hath God the Father sealed. Now clearly he's talking about two kinds of meat here, isn't he? He's talking about literal meat, labor not for the meat that perishes. If you leave meat out on the counter, what happens to it? It rots, it perishes, doesn't it? Okay. Then he says, but for that meat, which endures to everlasting life. Now what food can you eat that will give you everlasting life? And the answer is there is no literal food you can eat on the face of the earth that will give you everlasting life. It's not oranges, it's not apples, it's not peaches, it's not pears. Okay. It's not mutton, it's not beef. It's not, you know, crocodile, there, there is no meat. So obviously the second use of the word meat here is metaphorical. It's a play on words off the first literal usage. Okay? So he, he's saying to them, you know, there's another kind of consumption you need and that's the consumption of faith. You know, there, there's, there's the consumption of sight, which is that steak you had last night or whatever you ate for dinner. Okay. And then there's the consumption of faith It's the taking in of spiritual food that will minister to your spirit. Um, do you, does your, by the way, does your spirit need um, calories? It doesn't. Your body needs calories. Your spirit doesn't need calories. So he's going from a physical meat to minister to the physical body to a spiritual meat that ministers to the spiritual soul. Okay. That's pretty clear. Because he's talking about the issue of everlasting life, which is an issue that revolves around our eternal souls. All right. So he says, um, Labor not for the meat that perishes, verse 27, but for that meat which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe. On him whom he has sent. In other words, your salvation isn't by works. Your salvation is by belief. You're interested in works. Here's the work I want you to do. I want you to believe. Now, faith or belief is not a work. Okay? So, he's saying to them, don't work. Instead, believe. All right. So, he says, um, and and so what we see here is that verse 29 sets the theme and the teaching for the entire passage. Verse 29 says, believe on him whom he has sent. Why? So you can have everlasting life. Verse 27. So what Jesus is going to do now in the subsequent passages, is urge them in various ways to believe. And in order to help them understand what that looks like, he's going to use the metaphor of eating and drinking to describe what's involved in believing and receiving Christ into our lives. Notice verse 30. They said, therefore, unto him, What sign showest thou then that we may see him, believer? What dost thou work? Our fathers did eat man in the desert. As is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So what they're saying is, you know, do for us what Moses did. You know, they're still focused on what? Physical bread. They still want a meal ticket. That's what Moses provided, didn't he? Food for the body. Now notice verse 32, Jesus said to them, verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven. Who who gave the bread from heaven? Did Moses give it? God did, right? Okay. See, they ascribed to Moses what God really did. And Jesus said, wait a second, Moses didn't give you that bread. Um, This miracle is not an authentication of Moses that miracle was a manifestation of the generosity and the goodness of God to his people to feed them for 40 years in the wilderness. Don't ascribe that to Moses. And so he says in verse 32, Verily I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father gives you not only the manna, but also now the true bread from heaven. So the manna that came from heaven was not the real bread from heaven, it was a foreshadowing of the bread that was going to come. Were the animal sacrifices the real sacrifices? No. They were symbolic of the final sacrifice that was to come. Were the Arianic priests the true priests? No. They were symbolic and foreshadowing of, of Jesus who was the final priest, the priest of Melchizedek, who was going to come. Okay. And so you see in the Old Testament, all these things that God did, which were symbols of the real thing he was going to do later on under the new covenant. All right. So what he's saying is that the manna, number one, didn't come from Moses. And number two, it was only a picture of the real bread that was coming. All right. Verse 33, for the bread of God is he, which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. So, the real bread isn't an it, it's not a thing, it's not calories, it's a person. And that person is he which came down from heaven, namely Jesus, and what does this Jesus do? He gives life to the world. What kind of life does he give? Not physical life, spiritual life, eternal life, like we saw back up in verse 27. Then they said to him, Lord, evermore, give us this bread. They still didn't get it. And Jesus said to them, verse 35, and this is the key passage, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Now, if you're thirsty, what do you do? You drink. And if you're hungry, what do you do? You eat. So Jesus says here that eating and drinking are the equivalent of coming and believing. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. Coming is the same as eating. He that eats won't hunger. He that comes to me, Will not hunger. And then he says, And he that believes on me, he who drinks, will never thirst. He who believes will never thirst. So drinking is believing, and eating is coming to Christ. So when we come to Christ and we believe on Christ, that's the same as eating Christ and drinking Christ. And so, what the thing is, is that verse 35 provides the interpretive key for the whole rest of this passage when he starts talking about eating and drinking. Now, we're not going to have time to finish because we're out of time. And we've just started in this passage. But I want you to take this idea of coming and believing and just carry it through the rest of the passage as you read it this week and see how that when Jesus says, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. What he's saying is, unless you come to me and believe in me, you have no life in you. Now for the kicker, this passage in John six is not even addressing the issue of the Lord's supper. And the reason why is because it hadn't been instituted yet. This passage is related to the feeding of the 5,000. It's not related to the Lord's Supper in any way whatsoever. Jesus was not offering them in John 6 any symbols or any substitutes like bread and wine. He was offering offering only his literal flesh and his literal bread, no bread or wine was even mentioned or hinted at in this passage. And I assert, as do all Protestants, that it is wholly inappropriate to even remotely tie this passage to the Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper isn't in view. It hadn't even been instituted yet. They would have no way of knowing that he was referring to it here. And there's no bread and there's no wine. No symbols in the passage. No statement here of the new covenant. This is the new covenant in my blood. No statement here of the breaking of the body or the shedding of the blood. Just eat my flesh and drink my blood. So next week, I'm going to pick up here where we left off. We're going to proceed to the rest of the passage and show the absurdity of using this metaphor and applying it to the Lord's Supper. He has no application or relevance to the Lord's Supper whatsoever. But they employ it, so we're going to address it. What we really have here in this passage is a figurative description of what it means to come to Christ and what it means to believe in Christ because coming and believing are equated with eating and with drinking. So what he does here is he states the literal, and then describes it with the metaphorical. And so, as we proceed through this passage, it will become abundantly clear that he's not promoting cannibalism. Because if what the Roman Catholics say they do, they really do, then the consumption of the bread and the wine is the consumption of the body and blood of Christ, And the people are engaging in an act of cannibalism. And Jesus wasn't offering in this passage to people to come and take a bite out of his arm. He was inviting them to come to him and to believe in him. So read the passage this week, and we'll pick up from here and carry on with it next week. And God willing, finish it and move on to the passages that do address the issue of the Lord's Supper and the Gospels. All right. Any questions? Okay, let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the clarity and the simplicity of your word. But Lord, we see that Jesus did speak in parables. He spoke in metaphors. He spoke in, in allegories and symbols. And he did so to reveal the truth to his people while hiding the truth. From those who were his enemies. Father, we pray that we might rightly understand these passages and not go into a foolish illiteralism. Father, we pray that uh, our understanding of the language might be accurate, it might be balanced, and that it might be biblical. Lord, I pray that you would help us to grasp the meaning of the text before us especially in the week to come. It's a difficult passage. But May we remember the principles that are at the start of it and the context in which it lies, and thus be able to grasp the message that it has for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.